You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And thanks for joining me today on Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and on this show, we delve into the blue, watery part of our planet and highlight ocean-related topics. We talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, ocean adventurers, and more, all trying to uncover and learn about the mysterious and vital part of our planet. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Cordell Bank is one of four special areas in California waters that are part of the National Marine Sanctuary System, and it's located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast. So today we have two shows in one. Today we have... Um, Two very different topics, and we'll keep you on your toes. On the first half hour, I'll be talking with Nancy Iverson, a swimmer and by profession a doctor in San Francisco. We've had Nancy on the show in the past, and we're going to get an update from a program that she does where she works with Native American tribes in Pine Ridge and is working at improving their lifestyles, a program that involves swimming in San Francisco Bay. So we'll bring her on. And on the second half of the show, we will be having Josh Adams on from the USGS talking about a mysterious seabird that moves down up and down the North Pacific and is heading south right now, the sooty shearwater. And we'll hear a little bit about this incredible seabird. So please stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock. And on the phone with me, I have Nancy Iverson. Uh, The ocean is a source of life for millions of organisms. It generates air for us to breathe, food for us to eat, energy, jobs, recreation, and often unrecognized but felt very deeply by many of us is the psychological or emotional outlet for us. My guest Nancy Iverson uses the San Francisco as a place for such enjoyment and has been inspiring others, bringing the Native American Lakota uh, Lakota tribe to San Francisco Bay, and we'll talk with her about that. And I want to welcome Nancy. Welcome. You're live on the air on KWMR. Thanks, Jennifer. It's nice to have you back. We talked just, I guess, over a year or so now ago, right before the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival, where your film From the Badlands to Alcatraz, which depicts this whole story so beautifully, um, it debuted at the film festival. And you founded this nonprofit organization called Pathstar, which focuses on the preservation of traditions and healing. And I'd love for you to kind of recap for listeners that may not have been around with us then about this, this program that you've started and, and the whole story that the, the film was based on. Ooh, where to start? <laughs> well, um, one, I live in San Francisco, as you mentioned, and I got very um, hooked on swimming in the bay um, in 1993, actually. I had a lot of problems with back pain, and the cold water of the bay drew me in there. I found it very soothing for the pain. So ironically, I'm one of the people that's actually welcoming the cold of the bay rather than daunted by the cold of the bay. Um, Around that same time, I also worked some as a pediatrician in the Indian Health Service Hospital at Pine Ridge, which is in South Dakota. I'm originally from South Dakota, so I had gone back and done some work there. And several things that I saw and just the way that I kind of think about how we can encourage healthy lifestyle and help reverse the trend into diabetes, heart disease, obesity, that's a national trend and hugely in a crisis mode among the Native American population, just led me to ideas to try to start a program or to start a program that would actually try to encourage changes on a core level so that they would be sustainable changes for people to reconnect with their old traditions of of healthy lifestyles and healthy nutrition. Can you describe the Pine Ridge Reservation a bit for us? When I was reading up on it, it really set me back um, the second time around um, in terms of the state of their community there. Can you just describe it a little bit? 
It's an extraordinary place. Um, it's, it's sometimes described as the domestic third world, and some of the statistics about Pine Ridge are pretty harsh. It sits in Shannon County, which is the poorest county in the United States, and the per capita income is about $4,000 per year. One of the really um, incredible statistics there is that the life expectancy on Pine Ridge is 20 years less than the na- national average. So the only place in the Western Hemisphere with a lower life expectancy than Pine Ridge Reservation is Haiti. Uh, the and this unemployment is the, rate is about 85 to 90 percent. This is in the United States, and I think that's one thing that's really difficult to hear in terms of I know we have such a range of of economic scenarios here in the United States, but when you talk about the per capita, $4,000 a year and the life expectancy, that's right here in our country. So I just find that to be such a interesting um, fact for this, this group of people that are really trying hard to, to stay alive and, and vibrant. Yeah, and one of the things that's true, it's, it's really generational now. So one of the things that I really think needs to be incorporated in any program is to just sort of turn the tide around on the generations. The 85 to 90 percent unemployment rate, as much time as I've spent on Pine Ridge, it's still really hard for me to get my head around what it means to live in a community where most of the people really don't work or have the prospect of of working, especially in a meaningful way, which is something in mainstream United States, most of us have the expectation that we are going to fulfill some sort of life dream, um, be gainfully employed, be able to do something um, beyond just basic life functions every day. Mm-hmm. So you started this program about nine years ago now? Well, we're coming up, Jennifer, onto our ninth That's amazing. Um, Alcatraz Swim Program Week next, next week. So, yeah. We actually had plans in motion to have our first program occur in 2001, but the events of 9-11 really stopped air traffic for a bit, and that was just when we were going to have our first group fly out from South Dakota. Mm. So it's been nine years now. It's probably been a nice time for you to reflect and see some of the changes in, in terms of the participants and going back to their reservations and making changes. Can you tell any stories of any of the people and have they changed after their experience of working with you and swimming in San Francisco Bay? Yeah, there's there's a few stories. One for for the viewers who have or the listeners who have viewed the film, um they may recall there's two sisters in there. One sister went back after doing the Alcatraz swim and actually finished high school and started into college, which she said she did that because she'd done the Alcatraz swim and realized she could do more than she thought she had, would be able to before if she just put her mind to it. Um, there's one young man who's gone back and worked with South Dakota State Extension and has worked over three years, first one community garden on Pine Ridge and then two, and then the following summer, 13 community gardens. Um, we've really worked hard to... Um, develop some degree of sustainability and some degree of what people come out here and participate is really going to get implemented back home. And I'm very excited to say that this year it looks like we have a three-generation family coming. We have um, Terry Mills, who has participated in the past, his daughter Nikina, who's also a participant, and her son, Shai, who is a baby, so we're not expecting him to swim <laughs> Alcatraz, but I love the idea that he's being included in in the circle of a family working to develop healthy, healthier lifestyles. That's wonderful. That's um, really powerful. We also have a father-son team coming from Pine Ridge for the first time, and then we also have a mother-daughter team coming from Ketchikan, Alaska. That's neat. So you're diversifying a little bit in terms of uh, the geographic location of some of these tribes this year? We are. We, we thought we'd sort of throw out the invitation and, and see who responded. One of the things that we committed to in the last year, which we did, was to be in at least three national Native or Indigenous wellness-slash-diabetes prevention conferences. And um, so during the, the times of those conferences, we also 
communicated with other tribal members and put out the invitations. So we've got people coming from Ketchikan and also from the Colville Federated Tribes in eastern Washington. Wonderful. So this has really become a program that's growing and expanding. And how are you able to sustain this yourself? Are you bringing on more resources in terms of trying to help sustain this? I'm sure that funding is quite a challenge, but it sounds like it's really needed to keep this going. Funding is a challenge, and funding is really needed. I am happy to say this year we have, as of last week, we hit our fall funding goal so we can move into next week um, feeling confident that we're going to be able to cover all the expenses for the program. One other new thing that we did this year, um, we've alluded to it in the past, but this year we, we worked to formalize it a bit, is encouraging people who are participating to um, really work within their own communities or tribes to get some sponsorship. Um, and the, the group coming from Alaska, from Ketchikan, has actually worked with their own tribe to sponsor a diabetes prevention grant. So they're actually working to get the funding, which ultimately I see most sustainable. When the, the participants really own, take ownership of the program and their responsibility for ability to contribute to keep it going. So I'm very, very excited about that. That's wonderful. And then they really, the community wants to hear back about how it went. So that's one of the questions I have. It's such a, a great thing. You spend about a week with them really talking about healthy lifestyles and preparing for this swim. But it's a huge contrast in terms of where they come from. When they go back, how do they start helping to educate others and helping to make some of these changes in their communities. I heard you talking about a, a community garden. Was that started up from one of the participants? or That was, I, I'm not sure if he, I don't know if he single-handedly started it, but he had a big role in getting it started. Um, and the idea that there are 13 community gardens throughout Pine Ridge now is really exciting to me. That's wonderful. So can they learn a little bit about... Um, Gardening while they're here? It's just like yes, a prime area. I am so excited, Jennifer, for this year. One of our days here, we've always visited farmer's markets, and I've, I've tried to pick farmer's markets that would be most kind of realistic for what they might want to replicate back, on, back at home. Mm-hmm. This year we actually get to go to a farm, spend the afternoon with the farmer, hear how he started his farming, gotten involved with farmer's markets, help him with the harvest, help him pack it up, and take it to his local farmer's market and help him prepare for the farmer's market. So we get to have hands-on experience, pretty much, obviously not from planting the seeds and stuff, but from the time of, of being on the farm all the way through harvesting and participating in the farmer's market. So I am so excited about that. That is incredible. That seems like a real sustainable thing that's not a huge cost, although there's startup costs, but being able to really get more people involved back at home with that. Well, and part of what I'd like to help help people look at is what do they have that's already there that they're just not necessarily utilizing in the same way. That's exciting. Um, So, like, there may be people that have gardens that don't really work collectively to make sure that that food gets distributed throughout the reservation. Mm -hmm. So doing something like a farmer's market, not necessarily the way we do them here in California, but as an afternoon giveaway or a community gathering, something like that, but to just trigger ideas that are kind of like, aha, we could do this at home. That's great. What are some of the other ideas that uh, participants express before they head back that they're interested in trying to do when they get back? Well, we prepare the first meal, and then after that, the participants prepare all the meals. We do the shopping, and we meet with dietitians and health educators throughout the week so that hopefully the shopping and the food we have available makes sense to them. But, I, again, I really want this to be an experience that can continue on at home. So um, starting on Monday morning, they do their food preparation. And if we're gone during the day, everybody helps to pack a picnic that we take with them so that we're not out shopping for fast food. We're not kind of running out of food on the run and trying to find something just to get over being hungry. We're actually being really thoughtful with food, doing things in a simple way, but doing things in a way that anybody would be able to do back at home. Mm -hmm. 
And this starts next week, so you're running around right now, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again. I'm talking with Nancy Iverson, who is a doctor in San Francisco that is founded a nonprofit called Pathstar, and she works with Native American tribes in South Dakota and encouraging healthy lifestyles. And the culmination event happens in San Francisco, and I want to hear a little bit more about the swim. How do you plan the swim? Because this is a very special swim that not everybody can do just logistically crossing an area where there's big ships and all the time. Tell me about the planning of the swim from Alcatraz to to shore in San Francisco. It is immense, but again, in a way, the swim is a reality, Jennifer, and it's also a metaphor. I I think it is so important for people to have the experience of being encouraged and really aiming for a goal, but then being encouraged in the tools that give them success to, to reach that goal. So we have eight practice swims during the week. Um, this year we have 11 people on our roster. Uh, three have come before and participated. We have eight brand-new people, which is pretty much how the mix turns out every year. Um, we, we partner up a past-star participant with an experienced swimmer for every single one of the swims, whether it's the first swim when we just get in the water to the actual Alcatraz swim. So by the time the Alcatraz swim comes up, which is a week from the first Monday, um, they will have had eight swims in the bay. Each one we aim at increasing the time in the water, getting a little further out from the shore, and um, really working a rhythm so that they can participate and be encouraged by their partner and develop confidence that they will be able to make it across. And it's absolutely amazing the day of the swim. Um, we've done this. This will be our ninth past our Alcatraz swim, and um, every year we garner more support and enthusiasm. We're very, very heavily piloted to be doing open water swimming. We have to have boat pilots, and again, just like I want the one-to-one swim partnering, we have a rowboat or a kayak or someone on a surfboard accompanying each swim pair across the bay, too, um, and we can always use plenty of support. It's just a really exciting day. It is, sounds wonderful. I just viewing the video. That's such a powerful piece. Is hearing the music and the swimming. I, I'm a swimmer too, and it's just there is a big metaphor there in terms of growth and challenge and accomplishment and feeling good. And what are some of their initial reactions after they've done this? It's a mile and a half swim across. Well, it's 1.2 miles 1. across. 2. So the swim is usually, of course, a bit longer. It can be even mm. up to two miles swimming, just depending on how much kind of zigzagging there is with the currents mm-hmm. out there. It's a cross-current swim, so very seldom is anybody able to swim just straight across. So we time it more in terms of the amount of time it takes rather than the the actual distance covered, because we don't really know the distance. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that we have really aimed to do, um, and again, we build as we go along, but Community is so important, and the spirit of community working together, those who are stronger and faster, encouraging those who are weaker and slower. So our intention that we set throughout the week is that we'll all intend to finish together. And um, so each swimmer is kind of paired up with other abilities, but to start training on that during the week where... Um, not only do you overcome your own fears, but you look for ways to help other people that are maybe struggling a little bit more than you are. Mm-hmm. And um, when it does work that everybody swims that final piece together, it's just incredible. That's awesome. Do students want to come back to, I mean, obviously you have some repeats that come for a few years, but do they want to come back and swim in other areas or enjoy the bay again? Um, some of them do, especially for South Dakota people. The bay is a long ways away. Um, there was a group who, the past our group from 2006, had learned back in Pine Ridge about a pool that was going to be closed because they didn't have lifeguard support. And they so badly wanted to keep the pool open that they contracted independently with the Red Cross to do some lifeguard training. So I look at that as a very positive wow. follow-up. Um, and that was without any of my 
guidance or anything. That's just something they took on themselves when they got home. Fantastic. How do you keep up on all the stories? I mean, it sounds like there's so many things that are so small, but they really are significant back at Pine Ridge. And do you have just, is there some way to norm, check in in terms of getting all this information? Because this is really the, this is the success of this program is the change that's happening back there. Yeah, I do my best. It's one of the places um, where, you know, people are are often asking how they can help and how they can volunteer and to have some, we're, we're entirely volunteer run. We don't have any paid staff. Um, and anybody that would like to volunteer to help compile some of these stories or help with that, we would love to hear from those people. One of the things that we've really encouraged with the people coming this year is they really think about coming out as the start of a year-long association with PASTAR mm. um, so that they're sort of at home keeping keeping the momentum going with staying in touch with us, letting us know what's happening. With the conferences that we joined last year, the Native American Health Conferences, um, I helped coordinate, coordinate PASTAR's role in that, but in each one, a previous PASTAR participant was part of the panel that presented. So the, the participants are coming back and doing the teaching now as well. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. It's, it's what you probably hoped for in the end. It's totally what I hope for. <laughs> I would love, really, if we could success ourselves out of existence. When, um, when we've done enough to inspire ideas that are coming from the communities and communities working within their own communities to encourage change, and especially, especially healthy lifestyles, um, we wouldn't need to exist anymore. And then we could be doing it just sort of as a triumphal moment. Um, so I look forward to that day when every community has such a great investment in their own well-being and, and sees the possibilities of healthy futures. That's wonderful. So what are you most excited about for next week? Um, you know, for as the momentum gains, of course, right now it's a logistical nightmare as I'm putting <laughs> together all the different details that need to be attended to, but it is incredible to just start with that first swim and see how people progress during the week. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to meeting. I don't know most of the people that are coming mm-hmm. again this year. I've corresponded with all of them, um, but I've not met most of them. So to just really see and be a part of the transformations that occur during the week. I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. That's wonderful. It makes it all worth it. All that time, I know very well the amount of effort that goes into planning these details and meeting the students and participants is always the warmest part. Um, it's also cool. We have age range this year in participants from 14 up to 62. Oh, that's great. Which is a a really well, and I'm not counting the little babies going <laughs> on the sidelines, um, but in terms of of swimmers and real program participants, and I'm very excited about that age spread, and I'm really looking forward to to seeing everybody come together and and really work together as a team. I also love the group here locally that that volunteers and stuff. It is just such a great. A great experience for me, and it's not to, I, I do do a lot of very, very hard work and a lot of stressing out as much as I try to de-stress about it, but it is really a joy to see how everybody starts to light up and respond and and the the layers of generosity just really, really spread, and it becomes so exciting during the week. That's awesome. How can people contact you after this week, of course, if they wanted to volunteer or donate or get involved somehow? The best um, to, to actually reach me directly would be to go through the PathStar website, which is pathstar.org, mm-hmm. org. Um and one of the logistics, our website is pretty well kept up, but it doesn't have details of this coming week in there. So um, they should overlook that and just, but to go to the contact through, and those, those emails come to me. Okay. Um, there's also, of course, we're, we are a 501c3, and we welcome donations. Um, we have, like I said, we're covered for this next week, which is a fantastic feeling. But we've also committed that we're, you know, going into next year that we're planning to help people set up similar programs in the communities from which they come. So 
there's an ongoing appreciation of generosity with donating, too. Fantastic. So people can stay involved for the next year and and be in touch with you to help volunteer as well. And I look forward to hearing about the outcomes. I'm sure there'll be something in the media, the news about this, in terms of the success at the end of the week. So we'll be keeping our ears posted. Well, the other thing, too, it's always a little, um, we don't know exactly when we're finishing the swim, but certainly if anybody wants to come down to be on the dock um, to see the swimmers come in, it'll be Monday, October 17th. And I'm just recommending that people be on the dock at the South End Rowing Club, which is 500 Jefferson Street mm-hmm. at Hyde in San Francisco. And if if people plan to be on the dock about 9.30, they may have to stand on the dock for a while. It just depends on how long it takes us to get in as swimmers. But it's really wonderful to be there. And then we do do a follow-up. Right away we have a meal after all the swimmers are in. And um, if people want to come to that, we do that as a potluck meal. And, again, we would encourage healthful foods, primarily um, healthy fruit and vegetable dishes, if people wanted to come and bring a potluck. But um, we love to have people come and, and really witness the, the culmination of the week. That's wonderful. Well, we're just about out of time here, and I just want to say good luck to you next week and to all the participants coming. And I hope that the weather cooperates and it's a, a very nice program for you. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks so much. I'm going to just repeat your website for you. So if people would like to get interested, learn more, and actually see clips from the video, you can go to pathstar.org to contact Nancy to find out a way to volunteer or to donate. And if people are interested in seeing the participants come in, these are people that have only probably seen the bay for the very first time and started training this week or next week a few days before they do a big swim from Alcatraz to shore, you can come down to the South End Rowing Club on Monday the 17th of October, about 9.30, and keep your eyes posted as they come across, and feel free to bring a healthy potluck meal as well. That's wonderful. So thanks so much, Nancy, and I really appreciate the work you're doing. It's a really great community program that you've started, and it sounds like it's growing nationally, and that's really wonderful. Well, thanks, Jennifer. All right. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we've just been talking with Nancy Iverson, the founder of PathStar, and we've just been hearing about this program where she's been working with communities in South Dakota at the Pine Ridge Reservation and a really inspirational way to bring people out to San Francisco Bay. They're learning about healthy lifestyles, and they are swimming in San Francisco Bay as well. Pretty exciting. So... We are going to switch gears in just a minute here. When we come back, I'll be talking with Josh Adams about Sooty Shearwaters. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. And this is Jennifer Stock, and we're going to totally switch gears now and start talking about seabirds. Uh, We are going to be talking with Josh Adams from the United States Geological Survey Western Ecological Research Center. He is studying sooty shearwaters, an incredible seabird that's up in the North Pacific here. So when I come back, we'll have Josh on the line. Please stay with us. All right. Thanks for staying with us. I believe I have Josh Adams on the phone. Josh, you're live on the air. Hi, Jenny. It's nice to be here. Thanks for joining us today. So we are talking about a very special seabird, the sooty shearwater, and Josh has been studying them for some time with the Western Ecological Research Center. And Josh is based out of Santa Cruz. So first, Josh, I want to give a little background to listeners about a Hollywood connection for these birds. You've probably heard this a million times, but I think it's so interesting because we have Bodega Bay as a famous place where the birds, Alfred Hitchcock's film, The Birds, was filmed. And this film, the interest in the story of the film actually came from sooty shearwater slamming into rooftops dead birds in Santa Cruz in 1960. And Alfred Hitchcock requested a copy of the newspaper that covered this story as research material for the birds. Is this a true story, Josh? Yeah, that is a true story, (laughs) actually. Um, It's a very interesting one, and it's also very close to our hearts here in Santa Cruz. 
In fact, um, not too long ago, I was looking through some of the historic photos from that event, and uh, it was uh, apparently it was the galvanizing event for Hitchcock, who was living at the time in Scotts Valley, which is a little community in the mountains above Santa Cruz. And uh, he heard of this event and requested um, photographs and information from the Santa Cruz Sentinel, which is our local paper. And basically what happened was um, kind of a freak occurrence for seabirds and um, definitely a freak occurrence in Santa Cruz that hasn't happened since, to my knowledge. Um, but thousands of shearwaters came in um, at the middle of the night and crashed through people's windows and landed on their cars and on their lawns and um, caused quite a stir. And uh, no one really knows why it happened. It, it could have been a combination of um, lighting and uh, meteorological conditions or something like that. But the one thing that um, was apparent was the number of these birds. And it's something that we recognize here along the coast of California and Oregon and Washington. Um, every year we have this annual um, occurrence of extreme abundances of the species of shearwater that comes to visit us from the southern hemisphere where it breeds off of uh, the coast of New Zealand and Chile. So we're in this migration period right now. Are, have you seen some mass movements of or masses of these birds sitting on the water or moving on the water yet this season? Yeah, indeed. Um, just not a couple few weeks ago, here in Santa Cruz off our harbor, there were um, flocks that numbered in the tens of thousands, and it's a pretty dramatic sight in the evening when they come in and swirl like a big hurricane, um, feeding on forage fishes and driving the fishes closer and closer to shore where they become trapped. And occasionally the shearwaters um, will even come right up onto the beach as they're feeding. Wow. It's a pretty dramatic thing. And, and we are in, you mentioned that we are in a migration period. And for this species, the only time when it's really not migrating is when it's feeding its chicks during the breeding season. So right now, um, the birds that come here to the California current are um, just leaving um, the west coast of the U.S. and um, headed back to um, their breeding ground. So they should be there in about 16 days or so if they left today. And how many miles is this? It's about 10,000 kilometers in, in terms of a straight line. If you left um, Bolinas and you flew directly to southern New Zealand, it would be a little over 10,000 kilometers. So, um, you know, 6,000 miles or so. That's a straight shot. That's, That's a straight shot. And they pretty much do it in a straight shot as well when they return. That's incredible. That's a huge amount of time. Now, yeah. they so they're breeding down in New Zealand. They're getting into their breeding season in New Zealand, mm -hmm. and they'll be down there for a couple months? Yeah, they're, they're, um, they're returning to New Zealand right now, and they'll make landfall uh, for a brief period in um, early November, late October, early November, and they'll reassociate with their mate. And they're very interesting. They'll, um, they mate for life. They're fidelic in that way, like some other water birds that people know. Most seabirds are like that. Um, they meet, meet with their mate, and they get associated with their burrow. They nest in a hole in the ground on these incredible islands off New Zealand. And um, they clean out their house, and they become associated with each other again after a long <laughs> separation. And then they... Um, make their way to the to the waters uh, surrounding Antarctica in the South Pacific, South Pacific, very rich foraging area during the um, southern springtime. And there they bulk up and recover their resources from the migration um, and get ready to initiate the, uh, the breeding season. And that period is called the honeymoon period when they're mm -hmm. away from the uh, colony. Mm-hmm. And then in the late spring, our time, Northern Hemisphere, they start coming up, or is it more like the summer where they start coming back up to the California current? You no, know, they, they finish up about in April, and then they um, make their way, um, from New Zealand at least, we know that they make their way um, to the north and also to the west. So some birds make a migration that looks like sort of a half of a figure eight, and they'll fly from New Zealand, and they'll catch the westerly winds, and fly across to the coast of Chile, and then they'll make their way up um, towards the northwest and then either make it up into the central Gulf of Alaska, 
um, the California Current, or they may swing left and end up over by Japan and Kamchatka on the uh, western side of the Pacific. Wow, it's such a huge range. Yeah. So what does your research focus on? You've been working in the California Current, and what are some of the main things you want to find out about this bird, and how are some? what are some techniques you use to do that? Well, we started looking at um, the condition of these birds as they um, were uh, as they were wintering, so to speak, or the, during our summer period, when the birds were occurring off of Monterey Bay. And um, back in, I think it was 2004, we decided we'd um, go out and see if we could catch these birds at sea during the nighttime and um, record their body condition using some simple morphometrics. We'd weigh them and measure them. And we also took a small blood sample, and we sort of created... Um, a library of blood values that were associated with the free-ranging birds out here. And um, that was sort of in the context of rehabilitation or sort of to guide um, what normal healthy birds would be like in the case of, say, an oil spill. If those birds were to go into a rehab facility and the rehab personnel there would need to know, um, based on blood values and body mass and overall body condition, how those birds were responding to rehabilitation. So we did that. And then as a second part of that um, study, we decided to look more at depth of their movements and distribution within the California current. We didn't know um, if those birds were only visiting Monterey Bay for a short period of time or were they just passing through. It was sort of a mystery. And so since that time, about 2005, um, for about five years, we looked at the movements of a small sample of these birds along the California current from um, southern central California up through Washington state. And um, we've been finding some pretty interesting information about where these birds like to spend time. So what are some of these hot spots that you can find city shearwaters? Well, certainly um, the central California coast is one, but even within the central California coast, they tend to hang out in areas that are downstream from these um, archetypical upwelling centers. So where the cold water is um, generated during the spring and summer, um, they like to hang out downstream of those cold water areas in areas where the cold, nutrient-rich water tends to stick to the coastline somewhat and create a, a gestating pool of, of marine algae and a food web that's associated with that that um, stimulates large shoals of anchovies and sardine and juvenile rockfish and these really important um, forage species that um, so many of our predators here depend on. Now, I saw a fact on your website about how many tons of anchovies and fish that sooty shearwaters will eat. And do you have an estimate on that in terms of their intake? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one, and it's I think it's a question that should be looked at again in the future. There was some work done by a graduate student at Moss Marine Labs in 1977 where she actually looked at um, some of the energetic um, sort of requirements for the shearwaters in a lab setting. And based on how much energy they expend, she estimated that um, the abundance of shearwaters in a place like Monterey Bay which is relatively small considering the range of this bird, that they would consume, um, I think it's on on uh, par with the same amount of forage fish that are captured by the commercial fisheries here. So wow. I think it was an, on the order of 11,000 metric tons during um, a year. So I'm not sure if that number is actually correct, but the point was that in terms of the order of magnitude of, of consumption of these birds, given their abundance, um, they're taking on par equivalent amount of um, forage resources as the fisheries themselves. So they are acting like a big fishery or the fishery is acting like a really big predator is another way to look at it. Mm-hmm. What are some, you know, There's a couple different foraging strategies for the sooty shearwater. Pretty incredible. Can you describe some of those? Yeah. The, um, their foraging strategies in um, California include uh, like a sort of a – a wing-propelled plunging dive. And so these, these birds mill around and they seek out these large shoals of forage fish. And these flocks can exceed, you know, hundreds of thousands up to, you know, say a million birds in one single foraging flock. And so they literally blacken the skies above the ocean and they'll dive um, from a short distance above the ocean or from the surface itself. And they 
they fly underwater very well. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, they can achieve depths of, um, you know, 150 feet with no problem. And so when they're over the continental shelf, the forage fish um, become trapped against the seafloor in these shallow waters. It makes them very accessible. So, um, and they tend to feed um, in groups, so they're very highly aggregated when they're they're doing this. And I think they just must confuse the heck out of the, the forage fish and just go down there and pluck them like chickens feeding on, on scratch or something. That's just amazing. You just don't think about seabirds swimming around as much as fish, but that's just an awesome adaptation they have. Yeah. So not only sooties, but uh, you're also involved with work with uh, the pink-footed shearwater, which breeds off the coast of Chile as well. And tell me a little bit about that program, because are you looking at similar things in terms of the cities, these hot spots where they might hang out, or what's the goal there? Yeah, that's a, it's a similar goal there, and that, that work is being done um, cooperatively with you know a, a, among a bunch of us that are working together to try to figure out these questions. And the pink-footed shearwater is related, but um, it's a little bit different, and it doesn't. It's not as numerous as the city by any means, um, and it only nests on several islands off the coast of Chile. So it's relatively, as a breeding bird, it's an endemic Chilean bird. Yet it's one of um, one of our species too during its um, winter migration to the north. And so um, a number of us have been looking at the distribution and the migration patterns of that bird um, currently. We're looking at um, a handful, several birds that are on their way back to Chile after being captured on their colonies down there this last April. And what we found with them is that they also seek out discrete wintering areas. Um, Not all of the population comes up to the northern hemisphere. Some stay off the coast of Ecuador and Peru, where things tend to be rich all throughout the whole entire year in terms of the ocean productivity there. And then some of them come up to Mexico and stay there and winter off Baja, and some of them come up to our coast and winter here. And it's interesting to look at the pink-footed shearwater in comparison with the city shearwater because although they're relatively similar in, in shape and size, um, they definitely occupy a slightly different niches, and their body design is a little bit different to accommodate their different ecologies, which is sort of fascinating. If you didn't you didn't look at both of them together, I don't think you'd get much of an insight. But the, the uh, pink-footed shearwater tends to be a little bit farther offshore. It's less aggregated, um, and it doesn't dive quite as deep. It's a much lighter-bodied bird, and um, I believe that our, our distribution data with other species shows that it's more inclined to be affiliated with warmer waters and also with... Um, you know, schooling fishes and uh, and cetaceans like small dolphins that can facilitate driving prey to the surface. So, Interesting. Yeah, it's a little bit different bird. So there are some conservation issues probably at these breeding sites. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ones in New Zealand. I know there's a, a big cultural perspective, too, with the breeding sites and collecting eggs. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. It's probably one of the most interesting aspects of the species. The um, Rakiura Maori people in southern New Zealand regard the city shearwater as a teonga, which is a their word for a treasured species. And if you ever visit those people and go and see their, uh, their marais or their houses of worship, they have these incredible decorations and motifs of the shearwaters. And that culture has been Um, going to the islands off of uh, the southern coast of New Zealand and engaging in a culturally defining harvest that um, seeks to um, collect the chicks of the year. Um, The eggs, you know, the the eggs provide so much protein resource, but the actual, the nestlings um, are, are where it's at in terms of food and nutrients. So those people for the past 800 years or so have been going down there and they've worked out a set of rules that allow them to sustainably harvest um, shearwater chicks on these islands. And that sustainability is currently being evaluated. Um, it was directed by their um, their community to work with um, university staff in New Zealand to try to figure out um, if their practices are indeed sustainable from a population perspective. And I think it's one of the examples of a marine harvest that um, really does seek out to sustainability. Um, they're targeting 
um, the young of a very long-lived, low-reproducing species. So if, they, if their culture had started by taking the adults, which are regarded as um, sort of sacred and sanctified, then they would deplete the population really quickly. And I think they realized that early on and that by harvesting the chicks, they're allowing um, that population to sustain itself. So it's a really fascinating thing, and if and it's very much a part of their life, um, and they're very proud of it. And um, the people there are engaged in really looking after their habitats over there and, and taking care of the colonies there. And so we've engaged with those people and um, done some uh, work to help restore some of the colonies that were damaged by introduced mammals, specifically two species of rats. And um, we worked with the trustee councils from the command oil spill, which is an oil spill off of the coast of San Mateo County, south of Point Reyes in San Francisco, to garner funds from the U.S. to um, help eradicate rats from some of the major breeding colonies for city shearwaters in New Zealand. Uh, for those tuning in, this is Josh Adams. I'm talking with his seabird ecologist with the Western Ecological Research Center, part of the USGS, United States Geological Survey. And we're talking about sooty shearwaters. And one thing I wanted to ask you, you t- when we're talking about the sustainable harvest by the Maori people in terms of looking at that, in terms of is it a sustainable practice, how is that? Are they going to be looking at other external pressures in terms of ocean ecology as a whole? You know, there's new pressures on all sorts of marine wildlife now yeah, that weren't around 800 years ago. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And that's a very, um, very important concept to grasp is that things are changing as they're going through this harvest, and they're well aware of that. Um, climate change and the pressures associated with changing food webs and meteorological systems over the Pacific can um, impact survival. But one of the, um, probably one of the most important factors, I mentioned that that they're after harvesting the nestlings or the young of the year, but um, for a number of years there was a um, high seas drift net fishery that operated in the North Pacific, and that fishery was responsible for taking, um, you know, in worst case scenario, upwards of more than a million adults per year for a number of years until um, people got together and uh, there was a a United Nations ban on that fishing practice. And so um, some of the declines that have been recognized at the larger colonies in New Zealand over the past 20 or 30 years have been associated with um, adult mortality from that that fishing practice. Um, And so I think you know, now we're also, you know, faced with maritime commerce and the, the risk of an oil spill is always present. And if that oil spill should occur in an area where shearwaters are aggregated um, during their, you know, their pre-migration staging when they're over here, then, you know, significant mortality of the adult portion of the population could occur that there. That is horrible. I mean, yeah. that's even more so. I know that's a big concern here around the Farallons with the common MERS sitting on the water. It's a really big concern. But the sooties, too. Oh, my God. And the thousands sitting here on the water. If that happened, that'd be terrible. Yeah, it would be a mess. So, Luckily, um, it hasn't happened. Knock on wood on that. The more information we have, the better for helping to protect them and other birds and wildlife as well. How about the pinkfoots? They are uh, over by Chile and just nest on a couple islands on Chile. Are there some conservation issues there? They're, yeah. They're burrow nesters too, Indeed. right? Indeed. Yeah. So they face threats on the Juan Fernandez Islands, which are um, located uh, fairly far offshore from mainland Chile. There, there's um, been introduced uh, ungulates and grazing mammals um, that were placed out there for food, and those animals... Um, decrease the vegetated cover and cause erosion. And for a, for a seabird that nests in an earthen burrow, when you lose the, the uh, stability of the soil, your nesting habitat disappears. And there's also um, some introduced uh, predators such as cats on some of those islands. And there are groups um, locally here in Santa Cruz, Island Conservation and um, Oikonos, another nonprofit group, are engaged in um, trying to fix some of those problems. And there are other threats emerging in Chile as well. The island that I visited in April just received um, power for the first time in its history. And this is a, a island that's shaped like a backbone. And the uh, the ridge line along the middle of the island is, um, you know, remnant 
forest and contains substantial numbers of pink-footed shearwaters in the colony there. But um, circling that mountain range is lowland grazing areas, and there's um, there's been some loss of habitat as those um, people have encroached up the hills. But recently, they're um, they're you know they're, that island is now going to gain street lights and lighted habitation, and that can be a problem for these birds. They're, as you brought up in the beginning of the show, the shearwaters that came into Capitola might have been attracted there by light, and that's mm. something that is a problem for this, this group of birds in general. Interesting. We are just about out of time here, Josh, but one last question. We've had a really big phytoplankton bloom happening here off the coast, and it's not determined yet if it's a toxic bloom or whatnot, but it's all over the place, and the whales have left the area. <laughs> have you had any noticeable different migration patterns in terms of the cities this year as a result of that? Or Well, I wish I could answer that question. Um, but we are not tracking their movements this year. Um, we finished that work in um, 2010. But we will be starting to fly some surveys um, starting this week from about Fort Bragg up to the state of Washington. And we have a, a special little sensor on our airplane that records ocean color. And so we can maybe get a handle on what's going on with some of those phytoplankton blooms. But yeah. And we'll be counting birds at the same time, but we're at the time of year when the shearwaters are starting to leave. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's just been, everything's gone, and we heard that the humpbacks have already arrived in Hawaii from the north, so just things are a little different this September where we expect them things to be hopping and jumping. It's a little quiet on the water, so right. it's kind of curious. That'll be interesting to hear about the airplane surveys. Yeah, we'll try to, maybe we can talk about that in the future. Excellent. Well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show to share your information. City Shearwaters are incredible. And any hot spots here in Point Reyes and uh, Bolinas area for yeah, looking at them? Sure enough, you know, off of uh, Bolinas there, that's a great spot. It's one of those areas where the cold water kind of spins in a circle, and um, I think that's one of the areas that they like to hang out. I've certainly seen my data has indicated that there are flocks off of Bolinas and certainly off of Point Reyes, too, um, especially to the south of the uh, the headland there and then in within reaches of the Cordell Banks as well. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for joining joining us today, and good luck with the rest of your, your field season. Great. Thanks very much, Jenny. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. We just were talking with Josh Adams from the Western Ecological uh, Research Center in Santa Cruz from USGS and hearing about city shearwaters. We had a two different topics today, swimming and health and city shearwaters. And next month, I'm not sure what we'll have yet, but we'll have another topic for you related to the ocean. Feel free to catch up on past shows at our website, www.cordellbank.noaa.gov. I have a podcast there for the last five years of shows. And uh, stay tuned for future topics. I hope everyone's doing well this afternoon, staying dry out of the rain. Take care, and thanks for joining me today on Ocean Currents. You're listening to KWMR 90.5 Point Ray Station and 89.9 Bolinas. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.